Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm John Francolantini, producer of Book Dreams, and I'm very excited to be back to guest host another episode. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, one that is very near and very dear to my heart, we consider the creation of a literary paradise. Not a metaphorical paradise, not the idea of a paradise, but a real life has existed for over a century paradise for authors, specifically queer authors. To do this, I'd like to invite you on an auditory journey to my favorite place in the entire world. Just over 50 miles east of New York City, and right off the south coast of Long Island, lies a thin barrier island that feels like it exists an entire planet away. There are no cars or roads there. Instead, boardwalks are the major thoroughfare. Deer freely roam the island, always curious about what the human inhabitants are up to. Holly bushes and pine trees dominate the land, painting the landscape in shades of greens and reds, depending on the season. And the sky here is as vast as the ocean is wide. This is Fire Island. Today, the island is comprised of 17 communities, each one unique. But there is a pair of neighboring communities where we're going to focus our attention. Two pillars of LGBTQ history that roar to life in the summertime, and two places that I've been lucky enough as a queer writer to call my second home since my first visit in July of 2019, Cherry Grove and Fire Island Pines. So now imagine for a second how fast I jumped to interview this episode's guest when I learned he'd published a groundbreaking account of Fire Island's literary history chronicling the lives of the queer writers who have also called it home. This phenomenal human being is Jack Parlett, and his book is Fire Island, A Century in the Life in American Paradise. The book has been named an editor's pick by the New York Times and one of the best books of 2022 by The New Yorker, BBC Culture, and The Advocate. So just a few words about Jack before we get to the interview. Jack Parlett is a writer, poet, and literary scholar. He currently holds a junior research fellowship at University College Oxford, where he also teaches. His research focuses on 20th and 21st century American literature and culture, with an emphasis on queer writing and questions of gender, sexuality, and race. Jack completed a PhD in English at Cambridge University, which he adapted as a monograph entitled The Poetics of Cruising, Queer Visual Culture from Whitman to Grinder," which published in February 2022, and I also implore you to go read that as well. His debut poetry book, Same Blue, Different You, was published in 2020. Jack's writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Boston Review, Granta, Literary Hub, BBC Culture, and Poetry London. I started my conversation with Jack by asking him to give me his own description of Cherry Grove and Fire Island Pines. Here's what he said. Fire Island is an island off the south shore of Long Island. It's about 50 miles away from New York City. And it has, since the 1930s, really, or the late 1930s, when the community of Cherry Grove first began to attract a sort of queer population from the city, has had a reputation as a kind of queer haven, as a haven for queer people working in the arts in the city, but also more broadly from the city's queer community. So it's long had this reputation as a refuge, as a place to party, as a place to love freely. Its reputation is very much about its offering of something different, like allowing queer people to take a vacation 
you know, at a time when it often might not have been safe to do so in other parts of the state or the country. I've pulled a number of quotes from your book, so you can bear through the pain with me as I recite it back to you. You say, <laughs> looking back now, I marvel at the naivety of assuming that this place would simply open up to us, immediately revealing the pearl inside the oyster, which I think is an incredibly accurate depiction of what the mystery in the lure of Fire Island is. So can you talk to me about the impact that your trip in 2017 had on you to then convince you to write a book that's equal parts history, memoir, and there's even a little folklore in there? Absolutely. I think I didn't realize at the time when I was there in 2017, uh, that was the first time I went to Fire Island, that I would come to write something about it. But that trip sparked something in me. And it was as much a feeling at that point as it was a sort of coherent thesis, I suppose. I remember feeling sort of somewhat confused and like even maybe disappointed by that first night on Fire Island. When I went with my friend, we started in Cherry Grove and walked across to the Pines. And we weren't really clear what we were looking for. I think we found on that particular occasion, it felt like a kind of closed community and it felt like it was hard to penetrate. And just from exchanges that we had with people you know, at the pavilion, it felt like there were rituals, there were ways of being and there were ways of fitting in and not fitting in. And so I remember walking all the way back to like another community that we were staying in, like as the sun was coming up, just feeling yes, struck by the strangeness of it as a place, like this feeling that it has been a sanctuary in so many ways. But it's also, it's not a sanctuary that you just like chance upon. And when a year or so later, I came to a juncture in my own writing and my own career as a researcher and as a graduate student, thinking about what I wanted to work on. Um, I knew when I started out on the project that having some kind of memoir aspect would be important because that evening to me felt like it was inextricable from the story that I was interested in telling about this place, which has to do with its deep ambivalence, the sense that it's a paradise mm. and also a potential trap. It's a place that's been importantly structured around a kind of inclusion over the years, but can also be exclusionary in all sorts of ways. And I guess I felt that I wanted to implicate myself in that too. What assumptions had I made about this place? I thought that maybe I'd just be walking into like another bar or club that felt legible to me and it didn't. And so I wanted to interrogate that more and that became a story of the book. There's something to be said here that, um, especially for queer people, when they go through the trials and tribulations of coming out, we think that that's it. Metaphorically, the closet doors are now completely open onto all the things that we then get to experience as queer people, including Fire Island. But like you said, it's a guarded community with its rituals that you can access and work your way into. But you need to be familiar with these rituals and the people who make up the community. You can't just dive in. I think there are certain things that make it easier to just dive in or to be invited in, I guess. Like such a common trope in the history and in the sort of literary history of the place. Money and youth or particular visions of what it means to be attractive or handsome are forms of currency, like particularly in the Pines. I want to talk about the queer writers who made their home there. 
Cherry Grove started receiving crowds in the late 1880s, but it wasn't until about the 1930s that people started really lying down roots. So this is end of Prohibition, it's mid-Great Depression, it's mid-interwar years, and the queer and artistic communities are starting to look for a place to, to populate. And these are names from Walt Whitman all the way up to Larry Kramer. And we got Patricia Highsmith, James Baldwin, Truman Capote, you name it, the literary scene is there. So what is it about this island that drew so many queer writers to be there? I think there are multiple things that drew people there over time. One of them is to do with the broader sort of artistic community of the city. I mean, obviously there being a huge overlap between the queer community and the artistic community, but also that like so many of those names, Highsmith, Baldwin, Capote even, were, were going to Fire Island to stay with people that they knew from the city. So um, I think there was a sense that it was kind of already on people's radar. And so the question that comes out of that is why would they have chosen to go there as opposed to, say, one of the towns in the Hamptons or to Provincetown. And I do think that there's something unique that draws creators to Fire Island that did, you know, draw some of those writers there. And it is something to do with a kind of surreal quality in which you are not that far away from the city geographically, but you feel like a world away. It has the feel, I think, of a quite a fragile place in some ways it's small and like there are limits to how much it can be developed it's like absolutely a place that you could go to find solitude or creative solitude although of course the flip side of any small place like that is that especially if you have some kind of profile then you're very easily recognized and I think this was something that W.H. Jordan found when he was in Cherry Grove in the 40s, right, that people were always <laughs> coming up to him at the bar or at parties wanting to share their poetry or, you know, get his critique on their novel. But I think there was the sense that people were drawn there because it was beautiful, because it was easy to get to, relatively speaking, and because it was a way of accessing like a very particular kind of temporary community that like sprung up May through September each year and you could have a different kind of life there on the weekends or the days that you were there during the summer season although I do think you know in many of the testimonies of writers visiting Fire Island there is also a sense that often whatever dynamics or social dynamics that are there back in the city can easily be reproduced on the island so there was always this kind of tension about what you might find there but I think it always offered a promise of a place to write more freely and a place to be away from the gaze of the straight world. It never fails that 99.9999% of the time that I talk about Fire Island with another queer person, the word that always gets used to describe it is magic. And the way that you describe the island in your book is rather human. The exact line actually is, the island feels sentient, attracting illustrious visitors as if it always knew something of the fate it was headed for. Do you think there is a magic to the island that is also part of that allure? It's not just that it's coastal. It's not just that it's remote. Is there a muse of Fire Island that sometimes calls to us? 
you know, I feel like I've had that experience whenever I've been to Fire Island and it's there in so much of the literature, like the sense that the landscape itself knows something, feels something about the people who are there, that it's a repository of their of their legacies. And, you know, allure is always a tricky one, right? Because to be lured in is also to risk something, to like be proximate to danger. And I think that's similarly a part of Fire Island's story. But I absolutely think that there is a magical quality and it is atmospheric. And it's the kind of thing that you can feel the moment you step off the ferry, there might be people there waiting for you at the dock to wave to you. And there are people waving to their other friends. Maybe some people are getting on that ferry. Like there is absolutely like an atmosphere that falls upon the place. I want to talk about W.H. Auden for a second. He once told a Time Magazine journalist, quote, people don't understand that it's possible to believe in a thing and ridicule it at the same time. And if I've correctly read your Fire Island, something that struck me as curious and downright comedic at times is this love-hate relationship that a lot of the writers you mention have with Fire Island. And I'm specifically thinking also Noel Coward. And I'm going to read this letter that he wrote because it's phenomenal. I don't really think that I shall ever go again. It is lovely from the point of view of beach and sun and wearing no clothes, but the atmosphere is sick, sick, sick. Never in my life have I seen such concentrated, abandoned homosexuality. It is fantastic and difficult to believe. I really wish I hadn't gone. Thousands of queer young men of all shapes and sizes camping about blatantly and carrying on, in my opinion, appallingly. However, these authors who have these opinions like Auden, Coward, Tennessee Williams, Frank O'Hara, James Baldwin, they are still making the voyage to the island and they're still finding a place to write. So what is happening here with this love-hate relationship? Well, I think in part that relationship is historically particular and it's to do with like the particular lives and life stories of people who were born and came of age before liberation, before Stonewall. From a historical perspective, that informs that love-hate relationship in an important way, that there are all kinds of like internalised forms of internalised shame or homophobia that feel like they almost won't allow people to wholly love a place like Fire Island. But I actually think there's something larger going on because I think one thing that emerged in my part of the research for this book, much of the research was looking through archives and literary histories. But I was also speaking to people, you know, who have spent a lot of time there in the past and people who are there in the present. And there's, of course, a great deal of pride and love for Fire Island. And that comes also with a kind of protectiveness, I think, which is understandable. But I don't know that I spoke to anyone who had a totally breezy relationship with the place. Something emerged from a lot of the conversations I was having. There is a sense that what Fire Island has to offer is a form of like freedom that can quickly tip over into a kind of excess. And that this is also where its seasonality is important because the fact that this kind of experience unfolds over these particular months of the year actually intensifies those experiences, right? Like there's a sense of making up for lost time or it can even create a sort of pressure cooker environment. And so thinking of the Noel Coward diary entry, I think that to me feels like very specific to 
sort of forms of like bigotry and internalized bigotry that were of a, of a particular time and place. But I actually think that there is, there's a larger sort of trope in this history right up through to the present day that has to do with people's limits and what their boundaries are and like the sense that there could be such a thing as too much pleasure. You call Fire Island a paradise specifically, and you use the word utopia a few times as well. Did the idea of this location being a paradise or utopia also impact the literature that was coming out of there? That's a really good question. And it's actually something that I've asked myself a lot. I think that actually the answer is yes, probably. Maybe in a more diffuse way than, you know, like the sense that Fire Island as utopia wasn't necessarily this established narrative that people were writing towards or away from but I do think that if you look at like a lot of the literary texts about the place from Auden through the novels being written in the 1970s there's a great deal of religious language and that to me feels like it cannot help but establish a dialogue with a particular image of what a paradise is right a place of virtue as opposed to a place of sin and what freedom or a paradisal space might look like not to use paradise and utopia as exactly interchangeable but there is a utopian narrative that i think a lot of writers are resisting in lots of ways i mean something i suppose that i was almost surprised about in my research was how many of the literary representations of Fire Island are negative. I think that those representations are complex. I don't think they're negative for merely moralistic reasons. But I do think like there's a sense on the part of a lot of these writers that they're pointing out the ways in which this space that seems like everything we might ever want <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? Like a beautiful place of beautiful people where you can, you know, fuck who you want and fuck where you want and 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 do so freely actually isn't quite so free after all right and and this is not just there in the novels of the late 70s like Andrew Holleran's Dancer from the Dance and Larry Kramer's Faggots which I think are you know being produced at a really particular time in the in the arc of that era where some of the more complicated aspects of a liberated life are emerging for people but it's there, you know, going back to Auden, whose Pleasure Island is like, you know, actually presents Fire Island less as a paradise and more as a kind of a Golgotha, like a, a deathly place, a morbid place. So I do think that perhaps in indirect ways, these writers are aware of this u- utopian or paradise idea that they're actually kind of trying to qualify in some way. It's impossible to talk about a queer paradise without also talking about hells that have overcome it at times. And of course, I'm talking about HIV and AIDS. You've written, The decimation of the island's gay community shed light on the fragility of the past, on how easily tales and stories could die with their protagonists. It's inarguable to say that we've lost almost an entire generation of queer voices who were at the front forefront of progress and literature. So I guess a few questions in there. How did HIV and AIDS really impact the Fire Island community? And what impact has there been on 
today's queer literary voices because of what happened those decades ago? HIV AIDS affected Cherry Grove and the Pines in very structural ways in terms of who was there and who wasn't there anymore and who was who was buying property and um, like the sort of makeup of the community changed. People were now going to the same place that they had danced the night away, like to scatter the ashes of their friends that they'd been to that same party with. So it was a funereal space. It was like a, a space of tribute and memorialization. It changed that place in irreparable ways as it changed the lives of so many people and so many queer people. I guess another thing that I found surprising and again sort of hopeful was this feeling that that change wasn't necessarily like defeat or diminishment. I feel like there's a sense that in the 1980s, there's a very difficult and thorny moment where there are feelings, you know, among people like Larry Kramer and Vito Russo that people on Fire Island aren't engaging with the urgency of the epidemic. And I think that that's true in, you know, in some ways. But like, there's also a sense that it's not only a kind of ignorance, it's also a kind of defiance. The hedonistic culture of the place didn't just like immediately come to a pause or die away. I think personally is quite beautiful, right? Like there's a sense that like there were still ways for people to find pleasure and be together um, in the face of that devastation. Um, mm. But I think the after effects of that can still be felt, right? Like I think, as you say, there's a gap in dialogue between people of different generations that's been caused by that. Those are traumas that have legacies. And I think that a lot of queer writers today cannot help but write in that space, which is a an interesting space of a kind of vicarious trauma or of something that was perhaps, you know, present in early life, but not present in the way that it was for people who had come of age. For some, that's actually like a turn to the past. It's about honouring a legacy and honouring a generation. For others, I think it's about writing the present that we're left with and also what a future might look like. So big question incoming. And mm-hmm. stop me if this is too big, but thinking of the <laughs> conversations had in the last century on Fire Island, other than the, the queerness of these conversations, is there another common defining trait about the literature of Fire Island, whether it's books, poetry, theater, that defines it? Is there something other than it just being queer that makes it Fire Island literature? What queer means in that context matters, right? As in, we can use the word queer to think just about the identities of the people writing or making these works. But I do think that part of what queer could mean in that conversation is is about a shared sensibility. Something to me that probably gathers together a lot of these works about the place is like there is a humour. There's a kind of irreverent relationship to the place i'd hesitate to say that like that's uniquely queer but i think often it's kind of queer coded in the way that like something like camp is right or a kind of camp parody camp satire but you know even the 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 sort of like more maudlin or morbid works like Auden, who i just seem to keep talking about him today but like (laughs) you could read pleasure island 
as satirical, right? Like it's almost so extreme in its kind of negativity that it, that it sort of tips over into a kind of comedy. And I think that that's true of Holleran as well. Like Dancer from the Dance is wickedly funny about Fire Island in lots of ways. And even looking back to the work of Donald Wyndham and his short story, An Island of Fire, which is like quite restrained tonally and is like about some of the sort of like subtle psychological dynamics and social dynamics of the place there's a sense of we as readers not being sure whose side to be on or who to who to laugh at exactly right like there are jokes happening within these narratives so i do think like interestingly fire island has provided a space for writers to like consider what it means to invest in a fantasy and has also allowed them a place to kind of make light of that even in very dark circumstances there's a risk of being too sweeping with that kind of characterization of the literature but i do think that there is a like a a particular sense of humor that's shared even if it functions differently stylistically speaking that's shared across a lot of the works about the place now i want to tie in jack's last thought here with one more quote from his book and for context, I finished reading Jack's Fire Island while I was visiting a friend's home in Fire Island Pines. And this particular passage moved me very much to take a very, very long walk after I finished reading it. It is not a naive desire to chase something that, by its nature, can't exist. Instead, the fantasy of a world away from shame and silence, a place made for us where troubles melt like lemon drops, where, as Frank O'Hara puts it, we shall have everything we want and there will be no more dying, is a sustaining force. However one identifies across the LGBTQ spectrum, just existing is a daily practice and perseverance against, as Jack says, shame and silence. A practice that is often exhausting and if you're not part of a larger community, very lonely. So real life queer spaces, whether it's Cherry Grove or Fire Island or Provincetown, Asbury Park, Palm Springs, Key West, Puerto Vallarta. Each one is a rainbow flag, a reminder that queer communities and families can be so much more than fantasy. They exist and they are open to you. And that's why I keep returning to Fire Island in the summer. And that's why I also hope you'll grab a copy of Jack's book to learn what an American paradise can, should, and does look like. And on that note, that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams Podcast. Thank you so, so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Jack at jackparlette.com. Many thanks to Eve and Julie for letting me take over this week and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohelm.com, Julie at juliesternberg.com, and me at heyjohnfranco.com. And check out our podcast website while you're at it, bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and